Welcome. You're listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Visit us on the web at vedanta.org. Om Mahakali Mahalakshmi Mahasaraswati Swarupinyai Trigunatmikai Durga Devyai Namaha Salutations to the goddess Durga, whose nature encompasses the three forces of creation, and who embodies herself as Mahakali, Mahalakshmi, and Mahasaraswati. Good morning. I'll be speaking sitting down today because I'm in the process of recovering from a broken foot. Now, as I mentioned to Vrajaprana yesterday, oops, this reveals that I'm not a true yogi. Because if I were, I would think nothing of standing on one leg for an hour. <laughs> as I was preparing this talk, this thought struck me that titles are a lot like sutras. A sutra, or title, is a brief string of words. It introduces a subject. It opens the door to a wide range of possibilities of things that we might learn or encounter in discussing that subject. I'd like to think of the title, then, as an invitation and that today's title, The Divine Mother, One and Many, can serve as an invitation to the possibilities beyond immediate expectations. I hope that this morning we will go to new places, see things in a new light, and perhaps learn things that we had never come across before. So, the title, The Divine Mother, One and Many. Let's start with the obvious. The Divine Mother is one. She is that unitary supreme being. She's many. She shows herself to us in many forms. We're familiar with the forms of Durga, Kali, Lakshmi, Saraswati. Durga is that fiercely protective warrior goddess mother. Kali, her ferocious appearance, conveys sublime truth. Lakshmi, the goddess of good fortune and prosperity. Saraswati, the gentle goddess of learning, music, the arts. And there are hosts of others, Uma, Parvati, Brahmani, and so on. They all play roles in the creation, sustenance, and withdrawal of this universe. Today we're not going to be focusing on them, but rather on a couple of the aspects of the Divine Mother you may or may not have heard of before. I'm going to begin, however, with something that Sri Ramakrishna taught. This is an important teaching. I'll quote three separate examples of where he gave this teaching in the Gospel of Sri Ramakrishna. Each one is a little different, so each one gives us a slightly different take on what he's telling us. First, on September 7th, 1883, here's what he said. That which is Brahman is verily Shakti. I address that again as the mother. I call it Brahman when it is inactive and Shakti, when it creates, preserves, and destroys. It is like water, sometimes still and sometimes covered with waves. Now he said pretty much the same thing on December 26, 1883. The process of creation, preservation, and destruction that is going on day and night is due to Shakti, the power of God. This primal power and Brahman are one and the same. Shakti cannot exist without Brahman, just as waves cannot exist without water. 
And then the following year, on October 19, 1884, he said, That which is Brahman is also Kali, the mother, the primal energy. When inactive, it is called Brahman. Again, when creating, preserving, and destroying, it is called Shakti. Still water is an illustration of Brahman. The same water moving in waves may be compared to Shakti. So together, from all three of these quotations, we learn that Brahman is Shakti. And the word Shakti is interesting. It's a general noun that means power, so we can speak of it in an ordinary sense of power, force, or energy. But it is also, with a capital S in English, personified, Shakti, a name of the Divine Mother. And so Ramakrishna said, that which is Brahman is verily Shakti. I address that again as the Mother. Another important point to take away from these three quotations is that divinity, although one, has two aspects. It appears to us as Brahman, Satchidananda is the Vedantic expression that means being, consciousness, bliss. But we think of this Satchidananda, this Brahman, as an impersonal reality. And in a way, isn't that kind of remote? This abstract principle, way off, far removed from our daily lives. But then we have Shakti. Ramakrishna calls Shakti mother. And in the third quotation, he called mother Kali. So isn't that very personal? Here we have an aspect of divinity to whom we can relate with love in the most intimate of ways. So the two equal one, Brahman and Shakti are one. They are that single consciousness, being itself, which is the supreme reality. And that has the ability to express itself through its own creative capacity, the mother, Shakti. So Ramakrishna said, I call it Brahman when it is inactive, and Shakti when it creates, preserves, and destroys. It's eternally changeless, and yet it is dynamic and ever-changing. How can that be? Again, Ramakrishna to the rescue. He has a wonderful image here. He says, it is like water sometimes still and sometimes covered with waves. But it's water, whether moving or still. He also said there can be no Shakti without Brahman. There can be no waves without water. So if still or in motion, it is the same water. The message is, again, there is one divine reality that is consciousness and its own creativity. Consciousness and its own creativity are one and the same. So if we return back to the title, the Divine Mother, One and Many, the two aspects that are being referred to here, the one is her swabhava, her own being, her very nature, and the many are her expressions. And those expressions range from the vastness of the cosmos to the tiniest, most insignificant event that's likely to arise in your life, in your mind, any moment of any day. Now let's return for a moment to the opening chant. I'll repeat it again and we're going to look at it in detail. Mahakali, Mahalakshmi, Mahasaraswati, Sarupinyai, Trigunatmikaya, Durga Devyana Maha. Now we're all familiar with those goddesses Kali, Lakshmi, Saraswati. These are personified aspects of the goddess and they relate to what we call the level of popular religion. But those are not the goddesses intended in this chant. You notice each one of their names is prefixed with the word maha, which means great, 
Mahakali, Mahalakshmi, Mahasaraswati. So these represent principles, not personifications. We're at a higher level of abstraction here. And those principles, as the chant tells us, are the gunas. The gunas are the three universal forces of creation. They're called tamas, rajas, and sattva. Tamas is this force of inertia, rajas, activity, sattva, this perfect serene clarity and balance. And they make up everything in the universe. Now, when we're thinking of it in these terms, we're thinking in terms of ontology. Ontology is the study of existence. How do things come into existence? What are they made of? How do they work? That is ontology. So now let's look, for example, at the gunas. We find that there's kind of a parallel to what is known as the standard model of modern physics. There you have four forces. They are called electromagnetic force, gravitational force, weak nuclear force, strong nuclear force. Now let's just look at these briefly. Gravity. Isn't that a bit like Thomas? Thomas is that force which makes things heavy and holds them down. Um, electromagnetic force. One of its functions is to produce light. This reminds me a little bit of sattva. And then the strong nuclear force is that which holds together the constituent parts in the nucleus of an atom. And the weak nuclear force is that which lets fly apart. So together, these sound a little bit like the creation of the universe and the withdrawal of the universe, the rajas, the activity of the Divine Mother, first creating, emanating the universe, then withdrawing it. So the interesting thing is we've got two distinct models here, and they're separated by thousands of years. The three gunas from the Sankhya philosophy originally, the four forces of the standard model of physics. And yet either way works. And why is that? And this is important. Because matter, in its essence, is an expression of energy. And energy, shakti, is an expression of consciousness. Now, we don't know when the first human beings began asking what I call the perennial questions. Who are we? How did we get here? What are we doing here? How did this world come into existence? Did somebody create it? Who or what? All of these questions, but we know that people have been asking them for a very, very long time. And there is a good possibility that the first people who asked these questions noticed that it is the female of the species who gives birth. It is the mother who creates. And so the word womb, garba in Sanskrit, came to mean not only the physical organ of generation, but also it means source or origin. And so it's natural that early people would think of God as mother, or perhaps as the mother goddess. And in fact, we have images from as long ago as 30,000 years depicting mother goddess images, uh, mother goddess with aspects of fertility and nurturance. Now, our written sources are much, much later. The earliest one in the Hindu tradition would be the hymn portion or the Samhita of the Rig Veda. And this was composed over several hundred years, probably completed around 4,000 years ago. Now, there are 1,028 hymns in the Rig Veda Samhita, and most of them are extolling male gods. However, they also mention a number of female gods. The earliest of these is named Aditi. She's found in the earliest levels of the Rig Veda Samhita, and altogether she's mentioned 80 times in the Rig Veda. She's described variously. Sometimes she's described as the mother of the gods. 
She's the mother of humanity. She's the sustainer of all creatures. She's luminous. She's expansive. She is not to be limited. In fact, the name Aditi means not divided. Max Muller, the great German Indologist, wrote this about Aditi. Aditi is in reality the earliest name to express the infinite, not the infinite as a long process of abstract reasoning, but the visible infinite, visible by the naked eye, the endless expanse beyond the clouds, beyond the sky, and free from bounds of any kind, whether of space or time. So here we have the idea that Aditi, this earliest mother goddess of the Rig Veda, is already an idea beyond a personified deity. And this takes us into the realm of mystical experience, that direct experience of the divine. Now, both views are valid, the personified goddess and the infinite goddess. And the Rig Veda makes this clear in one of its verses. It praises Aditi as infinity and as the divine mother. That verse reads, Aditi is the heaven. Aditi is the atmosphere. Aditi is the mother, the father, the son. All the gods are Aditi. And the five principles, Aditi is that which is born. Aditi is that which will be born. So here, in the earliest Hindu texts already, we have the Divine Mother personified and also depicted as a one non-dual reality and its creative capacity or shakti. She is the womb of possibility, and beyond that, she is even that which she creates. Now the next question is, how does she create? And again, the Rig Veda has the answer here. Aditi is also known in the Rig Veda as Vak. V-A-K. This is another name of the Divine Mother. The word vak means speech. And in Latin, the Sanskrit word vak has the counterpart, vox, V-O-X. We usually say vox in English. We have the English word voice. We have the adjective vocal. All of these words come from that same source. Now, there is a hymn to vak in the Rig Veda, a very important hymn called the Devi Sukta. And Devi Sukta means the hymn of the goddess or the goddess's song of praise. Now, it's a very important hymn, and it's rather unique because it's one of about ten hymns in the entire Rig Veda that's written in the first person. It is I, the goddess, the divine mother, who is speaking. Most of the hymns are people praising the gods, appealing to them, not this one. Now, why would the divine mother speak of herself? The obvious thing is that it's not an act of self-glorification. This is for the benefit of humanity that the mother is speaking to us, in order to give us an idea of her grandeur, her greatness, to inspire us and to allow us to open our sights to new understanding. Now, how did this all come about? There was a seer in Vedic times named Ambrina, and he had a daughter named Ambrini, and she herself became a seer. She also had that experience, that direct experience of the divine. And when she did, the mother spoke through her. And so this hymn, the Devi Sukta, is also known as the Vagambrini Sukta, Ambrini's praise of the goddess Vak. This will form the basis of most of the rest of this morning's talk. The hymn has eight verses, and we're going to go through them one at a time. I'll read each verse and then look into it a little deeper. The hymn begins like this. I move through the gods of storm and light, through the gods of the heavens, 
through all the gods. I uphold the lords of day and night, the sovereign of the atmosphere, the god of fire, and the benevolent celestial guardians. First, I, the Divine Mother speaking. She moves through the gods. All these gods she mentions, what are they? In ancient Vedic times, all of these gods were looked upon as personifications of the forces of nature. So the whole cosmos was an expression of divinity. Thunder, lightning, sunlight, rain, all of this was a god or a goddess doing an act of self-expression. And so the Divine Mother, Bach, here is saying, I move through all of them. These are my own expression. These are the expressions of divine power, of Shakti. And that Shakti animates everything, the day, the night, the storm, the light, the rain, you name it. Shakti is the animating power of everything in this natural world. And then she said that she supports all of them. She is their basis. Without her, they would have no existence whatsoever. So this is also her claim to being all-powerful, omnipotent. The gods are her instruments. She moves through them. The second verse, I bear the nectar of immortality. I support the creator of living beings, the protector of the universe, and the gracious lord of prosperity. I bestow wealth on those who prepare the sacrifices and offer the oblations with an attentive mind. Okay, let's take this one phrase at a time. There's a lot here. I bear the nectar of immortality. Now, we're all aware of human mortality. All of us are born, and at one time or another, all of us are going to die. It's just the way things are. Every life has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And even the longest lifespan pales into insignificance when placed beside eternity. So, the nectar of immortality, what is this? It doesn't mean that we're going to live in this body forever. The mother's going to perform that kind of miracle. No, it means the realization of the infinite self. That is the nectar of immortality, knowing who I truly am, the birthless, deathless, eternal being, the infinite self. And that nectar of immortality liberates us from these confines of time and space. Now, she also says that she bestows her grace on those who prepare sacrifices. Now, in Vedic times, the large part of Vedic worship consisted of sacrifices. These were ritual worships that were enacted by groups of people with priests and supplicants and so forth. But the mother wants to take us deeper than that in this hymn. So the word sacrifice is yagya in Sanskrit. And yagya can mean sacrifice through oblation, pouring a ladle full of ghee into the sacred fire. But it can also mean worship, devotion, prayer, or praise. And those latter words, those are more of an inner activity. So the mother confirms this because she says, those who prepare sacrifices with an attentive mind. Yes, the ladle pouring the ghee into the fire is an outward expression. But that is an outward expression of something that also should be going on inwardly. And that inward worship, that inward sacrifice, should become, in a spiritual practitioner, a perpetual act of turning the mind toward the divine. Every thought, word, and deed should become an act of selfless giving. That's what the mother is telling us. 
Now, it has no direct bearing on this verse, but the Latin, uh, the word sacrifice comes from the Latin sacer facere, which means to make holy. Now, we often think of sacrifice as a dutiful and sometimes painful act of self-deprivation. Did you ever get that idea that that's what sacrifice is all about? Well, let's forget that. Let's remember that to sacrifice means to make holy. And this is not just outwardly, but for everything that goes on inside. So every thought and feeling that arises in our mind should be directed toward divinity to be made holy. And then the mother said she bestows grace on those who offer sacrifices. Okay, what does she mean by grace? Does it mean you have to be deserving? Is grace a quid pro quo? I'll do that if you'll do this for me? No, that's not what she's saying. Grace is unconditional. Divine love is unconditional. And that grace shows itself through our increasing awareness of the divine presence in our lives. When we have that awareness of the divine presence, is that not itself a state of grace? And so I like to define grace as divine self-revelation. So when the mother says, I bear the nectar of immortality, basically what she's saying is that there's always that possibility for you of self-knowledge, liberation, and enlightenment. The possibility is always there. On our part, we just need to be attentive, to have an attentive mind, and to be receptive. That's what grace looks like from the human side. An attentive mind is a receptive mind. The third verse, I am the sovereign in whom all the auspicious gods are united. Shining with consciousness, I am foremost among those worthy of worship. The gods diffuse me in every direction, my presence abiding in many places and revealed in manifold ways. Here the mother is asserting her autonomy, the fact that she rules over all. There are no others to rule over her. She is the one, the supreme. In her, all auspicious gods are united. Yes, all these aspects of divinity are part of her. They're united in her oneness, in her unity. And this means that the Divine Mother is that unity, that supreme reality that the Vedanta calls Brahman, the one without a second. And this is further borne out by the fact that she says, I'm shining with consciousness. Now, in Vedantic teaching, and also in Tantric teaching, we have a word, prakasha. Prakasha means the shining forth, the radiance, the self-luminosity of divine consciousness. And the Vedanta philosophy says, yes, Brahman is prakasha. It is this consciousness. And so in this hymn, the mother's presence reaches into every corner of the world, shining forth through all the forces, all the expressions of power, in untold ways. Now, it is the nature of consciousness to shine, and it is the function of consciousness to illuminate. What does this mean? Beside the word prakasha, which is shared by the Vedanta philosophy and the Tantric philosophy, the Tantra has another word which the Vedanta doesn't use, that is vimarsha. Vimarsha is the consciousness's own self-awareness, its own power of expression. And so we have the idea that here consciousness is both prakasha and vimarsha. It is its own self-luminosity. It is its own power to reflect itself, to know itself, and to express itself. Now this ties in very well with the quotations from Sri Ramakrishna. 
Another one is that Ramakrishna said, you cannot think of the sun without its rays, or the rays without the sun. So if the sun is prakasha, that eternal shining forth, then the vimarsha is the rays, the ones that express outwardly. So the mother says, the gods diffuse me in every direction, my presence abiding in many places and revealed in manifold ways. She is the one being manifest as the many. The Vedic gods are like the rays of the brilliant sun. The sun is the divine unity, and every force and manifestation of nature shines from that one source, from that one point of origin, that one womb, that one shakti. Now the next verse has an eloquence that for me personally resounds over 4,000 years of time, from the time that it arose first in the mind of Ambrini, who expressed it in Sanskrit, till it was translated into English. I love this verse. Through me alone all mortals live, who see and breathe and hear what is said, not knowing that they abide in me. Hear me as I speak the truth to you. To me, this is just a stirring declaration of the human condition. We're all living in this world of the senses. We take in things through our eyes, our ears, and so forth. We take everything at face value. We fail to recognize the light of consciousness shining forth from every object, every act, everything in the universe. At every moment, we abide in divinity, in the Divine Mother, yet we are unaware of that. We hear sounds, touch things, feel things touching us. We see forms and colors, we smell fragrances, we taste the food and drink that sustain us. But how often are we aware of the divinity present in all of that? Hear me as I speak the truth to you. Now this is not merely the mother asking us to believe what she's going to say next, but to experience the truth that she is about to make known. And so the fifth verse is this, I myself proclaim this, which is pleasing to gods and men alike. I make mighty whomever I wish. I make him devout and open his eyes to right understanding. Now I think the first thing about this verse is not to jump to the wrong conclusion. I make mighty whomever I wish. She's not saying that she is the bestower of worldly power. History is just full of successions of kings who claim to rule by divine right, and we look at what many of them did, and a lot of it wasn't good. There's a lot of evil in the expression of power. There can be good in the expression of power. And the pages of history are stained with the abuse of power. So the mother says, you know, pleasing to gods and men alike, whomever I wish, whatever our status is, the Divine Mother says that she can empower us whether we're powerful people, rich people, poor people, intelligent people, not so intelligent people, it doesn't matter. We're all our children. And she can empower every one of us, not with mundane might. She empowers us with knowledge. And this knowledge has consequences. She says she makes a person devout. What does that mean? To be devout means to have one's heart and mind open to the giving and receiving of selfless love. And then she says that she opens our eyes to right understanding, to see things as they truly are. And she says this is pleasing, pleasing to gods and men alike. Now, why would this be pleasing? 
Because first of all, it says, there's no need to lead an uninspiring life in the dimness of ordinary awareness. Right understanding brightens everything, transforms our lives. We begin to see things as they truly are. We begin to see the infinite in the finite. We begin to see the universal in the particular. And above all, we begin to see the miraculous in the commonplace. The whole world becomes transformed, and as a result, we who behold it likewise become transformed. Now, this doesn't mean that there is not evil in this world. We have to recognize that there is. And so the next verse addresses this problem of evil in the world of ordinary experience. The Divine Mother says, For the God who puts evil to flight, I draw the bow, that his arrow may strike down the hater of devotion. Such is the fervor I stir within that man. Through heaven and earth I extend. Now this verse is probably the most difficult of all to understand because it's couched in heavy Vedic symbolism. So let's try to figure out what it all means. First of all, for the God who puts evil to flight, that God is Rudra, and Rudra is the Vedic name for Shiva. Shiva has a bow, and that bow means right intent. The desire to turn the mind towards higher truths beyond our usual thoughts that keep us caught up in this world. So that is the bow. And then what about the arrows? The arrows symbolize the right thoughts themselves. And these right thoughts are the ones that dispel thinking, that keeps us in ignorance and bondage. So it is the mother who empowers us to reach for something higher, to be able to use that power of mental discernment in order to get our thinking right, to direct it towards the higher reality. So who's the hater of devotion? That is a person whose mind is closed to higher and noble dimensions. So in other words, the mother says that through Shiva, through Rudra, with his bow and arrows, which are metaphorical, she directs our mind toward the higher values and the highest truth. And she says also, such is the fervor I stir within that man. What does that mean? Fervor means enthusiasm to follow the spiritual path. This is a very positive and affirmative endeavor. And spiritual practice should always be positive, affirmative, and done with enthusiasm. We don't grit our teeth to find God. Now also at the very end of this verse, the mother turns to the idea of all-pervasiveness. There's no place where that she is not. And she's turning us now from this world of the here and now that she's been discussing with good and evil. She's taking us up to the universal level where we can see her creative role in the cosmos. Verse 7, At the summit of creation I bring forth the heavens. My creative power flows from amid the waters of the infinite ocean. Thence I spread through all the worlds and touch yonder heaven with my vastness. This reminds me of what Ramakrishna said again. He compared the ultimate reality to an infinite ocean. He said when this ocean is still, it is Brahman, and when it is active with the waves of creation, sustenance, and dissolution, it is Shakti. The Devi Sukta was written about 4,000 years earlier, and yet we have a very similar image here, this infinite ocean. The infinite ocean of consciousness, and it is from this that creation flows forth. 
Now, the Divine Mother's vastness exceeds the visible heavens. Yes, as far as we can see, she's there, but she is beyond that. And this again brings to mind Aditi and how she's described in the Veda and how Max Muller described her, the infinite mother of all creation. Remember, he said, the endless expanse beyond the clouds, beyond the sky, and free from bounds of any kind, whether of space or time. And so here the mother is declaring just how vast she is. And the final verse, again, is one that I think has really an unforgettable eloquence. I breathe forth like the wind, setting all the worlds in motion. So great have I become in my splendor, shining far beyond heaven and earth. So everything emerges animated by the life-giving breath of the Divine Mother. Her splendor is inconceivable. Now today we have telescopes, and we have the Hubble telescope, and we have things where we can see much more of the cosmos than any of our ancient ancestors could have. But they intuited it. They intuited that greatness. Today we can see it with our eyes. But on the other hand, divine glory eclipses even that, because she is infinite. The Divine Mother is transcendent, shining far beyond heaven and earth. That's what she means, transcendent. This takes us into the metaphysical realm. We have two realms, the physical realm, that's the here and now, the metaphysical realm. Meta means beyond. So beyond this realm of matter and objects, there is a higher state of being, the realm of infinity, and that's where the mother wants to lift our thoughts. So remember at the very beginning of this hymn, I move through the gods of storm and light. So here she is, imminent in this world, directing everything that happens here. And at the end of the hymn, she's saying, I am beyond all this. I am the infinite, the transcendental one. So she's taken us on a huge trajectory from the here and now to a state of high spiritual realization. Now, the rest of this morning's talk is about another passage from the Rig Veda. Now, this one does not have the eloquence of this hymn. It's just one line in another hymn. But it is about the goddess Vak. And it's very important. Now, most of you will be familiar, if you've attended many Vedanta lectures, with a quotation from the Rig Veda, Ekam Sat Danti. Truth is one, the wise call it by various names. And this is often quoted as a sublime statement of religious universality. Well, that's not the verse we're going to talk about. The verse we're going to talk about this morning is immediately before it in that same hymn. But I doubt that many of you have heard it before. It doesn't have the beauty of the Devi Sukta, but it gives us the idea, the foundation, of a philosophy of creation through the word. It tells us that Vak, the goddess of speech, has four levels. And this verse influenced later thinkers, and the influence was far-reaching because it led to a whole theoretical or intellectual philosophy of creation through the word. But beyond the theories, it can enhance our understanding of our own lives in a most personal way, which you'll see as we go through this. So, here's the verse. Speech is measured in four quarters, known to those Brahmins endowed with wisdom. Three remain hidden and unmanifest. Humans speak by the fourth quarter alone. Now, I'm not going to get really technical here. I mean, there are whole books written on this. But I think if we get just a basic understanding of what's going on here, it will allow us to see things in a new light. 
And to begin, let's recall the title of today's talk, The Divine Mother, One and Many. Now we have the One Mother, and now we're talking about four levels of speech. So the four levels of speech have Sanskrit names, para, pashanti, madhyama, and vaikari. First of all, para. Para means supreme. And this carries the idea of something that exceeds or lies beyond. It carries the idea of inexpressible greatness. So paravak, the supreme speech, this transcends ordinary speech. It transcends everything. This is uncreated. This is Brahman. This is really the highest reality of consciousness. This is prakasha, but also endowed with vimarsha, its own power of self-expression. And so we have here the unity of consciousness and creativity, paravak, the unity of consciousness and creativity. It's also called parashakti, the supreme power. It's called chitti. Now, you all know the Vedantic word chit, which means consciousness, brahma-satchirananda, being consciousness bliss. Well, that expresses consciousness as an eternally unchanging essence of Brahman. But the word chitti, which is used in tantric teaching, has a different connotation. Chitti is consciousness in its dynamic, creative mode. So, what happens here is we have paravak, the infinite ocean of consciousness. The idea is that things are going to arise in this ocean of consciousness, just the way the waves rise and subside. And just as there are no waves without the ocean... There can be no names and forms, no creation, without the eternal presence of Paravak, of that supreme consciousness. Now, how does this all come about? The next level down is called Pashyantivak, which means visionary speech. This is our first step away from transcendence. This is manifestation set into motion. So this is the initial phase of creation. And this occurs as an intuitive revelation. It all flashes forth instantaneously, whole, without division, without sequence, yet vibrant with possibility. So this is the beginning of differentiation within the divine consciousness. Pashantivak is the first hint that the wave is about to rise and take shape, that the cosmos is about to emerge from divine consciousness. What happens next is Madhyamavak, intermediate speech. Here is the formative stage of creativity, where details emerge in mental space and mental time and assume place and sequence. So the whole of the creation at this point exists, but as ideas and thoughts in the divine mind. It's called Madhyamavak, the intermediary, because it's between the initial intuitive flash, the Pashanti, and the actual manifestation that is yet to emerge. And that fourth stage is called Vaikarivak, which literally means corporeal speech, speech that's got a body. So here, the world as we know it, with all its objects, qualities, functions, and interactions, comes into embodied physical existence as an expression of the divine creative will. This is the culmination of the process. And this process is known in various religions as creation through the word. In the Hindu view, this tells us how the goddess Vak speaks the universe into existence. Now, in review, we have the entire range of creative expression here. First, we have consciousness and its eternal potentiality, the Paravak. 
Then we have the causal or intuitive flash, the Pashyantivak. Then we have the subtle or mental formulation of the cosmos, the Madhyamavak. And then we have the actual material embodiment of the cosmos, the Vaikarivak. Now, I mentioned the word ontology a while before, the study of existence. And here, this, what I've just given you is a very ontological view of this theory of the four levels of speech. But we can also look at it epistemologically. I'm throwing out another word here. Epistemology, the study of how we know. How do we know, and how do we know the validity of what we know? So here it gets personal. Now, how is this going to get personal for us? Well, from an ontological standpoint, we have saw how the cosmos emanates from the Divine Mother. Now, from the epistemological standpoint, we're going to see how that same consciousness manifests from our individual perspective. Who are we? We are all embodiments of that same Divine Mother. Everything is an embodiment of divinity. Now, when the Divine Mother looks down at the creation, she looks at you, you, and you, and me. She says, oh, there's a mini-me. There's a mini-me. We are all mini-me's. We are all endowed with that same power of consciousness that the mother used to bring forth the universe. But we have it in a very, very limited way. It's the same process. However dimly it's reflected in our awareness, it is that same process. So let's look at this model of the four levels of speech again, but this time from our own human perspective. Paravak is my own highest level of consciousness. This is my self-knowledge, my pure self-awareness. It's always there. There's never a time. I cannot be without my self-awareness. And then suddenly, something happens. There's a movement, a stimulus. Something flashes in my awareness. Where did it come from? It wasn't there an instant ago, but it flashes forth. And it's whole. It's complete. It's timeless. It's without any sequence. That is the Pashantivak, the visionary speech, as I experience it. And this gets me to thinking. It's like a real stimulus or a prod. And then the mind goes to work. And I begin to formulate ideas. What did I just experience? What's this about? I want to give it sequence and logic. I want to make it meaningful. I want all the pieces to fit together. And so that is what Madhyamavag does. It sorts out everything in the mind, shapes it into a presentable form. And then mentally, I want to express this. So how do I do that? I have to put it into words. And so mentally, I form words, phrases, sentences, and paragraphs. And this all happens so fast, I don't see any of it happening. And by the way, just incidentally, when you sit to meditate and you try to quiet the mind, do you ever notice what a chatterbox your mind is? That's the Madhyamavak at work. So, Vaikarivak actually has two stages. There is that purely mental stage where we formulate everything that we're getting ready to say. Now it's ready to go. And once it's ready to go, it comes out of the mouth and it becomes stula Vaikarivak, or gross, or material corporeal speech. This is consciousness embodied as physical sound. And it has the ability to transmit information and meaning. It has the ability to stir others into action. So this is how we have that power. Remember what the Rig Vedic hymn said? Three of these levels of speech remain hidden and unmanifest. They're there, but we're not aware of it. Humans speak by the fourth quarter alone, 
when we speak, we are very much aware of what we're saying. Because it's usually important. So the fourth is this Vaikadivak, speech as we know it. Now, language consists of building blocks known as phonemes. Phonemes are the basic sounds or sonic energies of language. They are vibrations. They're a physical phenomenon, and they are the building blocks of our thought and our speech. The phonemes combined together form words, and the words stand for objects, ideas, feelings, actions. And then these words put together into sentences when combined into phrases or sentences take on even more meaning, and they become tools to convey what we want to express. This is all done according to the you know, language's rules of grammar and syntax, certain order, certain way we say things. Now, we had said before that divine speech is creative power. So what about our speech? Does our speech have creative power? Pizza. How many of you were thinking of that before I mentioned it? I think it would be quite remarkable. It's not impossible, but I doubt if that's the case. Okay, it wasn't there before, was it? And then for a moment, you heard the word, and it becomes present to your consciousness. It's there in your mind. And I was able to put it there through speech. Now, was it worth thinking about? Maybe it came and went already, and it's gone. Or just maybe it started a desire. Can that lead to an action? Maybe before the day is over, you're going to act on it? Or what if I had said the beach, or movies? or shopping, or tennis, would your day unfold differently? Who knows? So this is a very basic example. Now, there was an earlier example in the talk today when I read those verses from the Rig Veda. The couple of them I mentioned, these have such an eloquence that what happened in Ambrani's mind 4,000 years ago enters into my mind and my heart and moves and inspires me. That's all through the power of speech, through the words of that hymn. And so, yes, we all are endowed with this power, this shakti of the Divine Mother. She is present in every one of us. She acts through everyone in everything we think and say and do. Everything is made of waves in the ocean of consciousness. So what Sri Ramakrishna called shakti, or kali, is also called vak, speech. Now, is there a practical lesson we can take away from this? There is. Otherwise, why bother? At present, we can't turn to the daily news without hearing of divisiveness, hate-mongering, racism, mass shootings, terrorism in the name of religion, and people all over the world spoiling for a fight, while others suffer the scourges of man-made violence or natural disasters. Ask yourself, how do I respond? How can I? Who am I to do so? One answer is, I'm a child of the Divine Mother, and a share of her shakti is my birthright. I'm a child of the Divine Mother. You are children of the Divine Mother. We are all children of the Divine Mother. And she made us in all sizes, shapes, and colors as a sign of her boundless creative imagination. We are one race, one human race, and we are all brothers and sisters in this one immense family. Isn't that cause for celebration? Our outward diversity is exceeded only by the inward diversity of how we think and feel, 
how we look at all the events, circumstances, and questions of life from our multiple perspectives. Our diversity should not give rise to distrust, fear, hatred, division, conflict, or violence. Yes, there appears to be evil in this world, but there is also good. As my guru, Swami Prabhavananda, defined it, good is anything that takes us toward divine unity, and evil is anything that tears us apart. Which way shall we go? The answer should be clear. We are all children of the Divine Mother. We are the many expressions of the One. Let us recognize that and be saturated in her presence. Let us recognize that she endows each of us with the power of expression. As some religions teach, we are co-creators. Whenever that first stirring animates our awareness, we have a choice in setting its course. We can project our inherent nobility by bringing forth understanding, kindness, compassion, and benevolence. We can create acceptance, equality, justice, and harmony in the world. We all have the power to bring the love of the one into this world of the many. Thank you. Om. Purnamada Purnamidam Purnat Purnamudachate Purnasya Purnamadaya Purnamevavashishate Om Shanti 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 Filled full with Brahman are the things that we see. Filled full with Brahman are the things we see not. From out of Brahman floweth all that is. From Brahman all yet is it still the same. Om Shanti 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 Peace, peace, peace. You've been listening to the Voice of Vedanta podcast from the Vedanta Society of Southern California. Thanks for listening.